Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a lecture from Beverly Roberts Gaventa on listening to Phoebe read Romans. For a lectureship honoring a woman and intended to focus on some aspect of feminist scholarship, it may seem more than a little bit ironic that my subject matter this evening is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. I already heard a groan across the room. <laughs> I don't suppose that's as bad as inviting Mitt Romney to address a dinner in honor of Barack Obama, <laughs> or uh, honoring Moses with a golden calf, but it will seem odd to some folks, uh, probably to some of you. Selecting Romans as my topic may make things stranger still. What we now call feminist exegesis, when it was in its infancy, uh, did address some Pauline texts, most notably Galatians 3.28, everyone's favorite, and several texts in 1 Corinthians having to do with marriage and hairdos or hats, depending on your exegesis, and speech. In addition, there was and is discussion of some passages that may or may not have been written by Paul, especially the household codes in Ephesians 5 and various comments in the pastoral epistles. Back then, there was very little discussion of Romans 16, which consists of a recommendation of a woman by the name of Phoebe and a long set of greetings. One reason for overlooking Romans 16 was that uh, some years ago there was a proposal that went around for a while uh, that this chapter was not part of the original letter as it circulated, was not integral to the letter. That, that theory has now been thoroughly uh, discredited, and most specialists read Romans all the way through, from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 16. Even now, however, I suspect that a good many people who read Romans simply skip over chapter 16 altogether. The lectionary pretty much ignores it, apart from the concluding benediction, and one can scarcely blame them. I regularly teach a course on Romans, and by the time we get to the end of the letter, frankly, most of us are exhausted. We hit this patch of names, and we perhaps giggle a little over their strangeness. I don't myself. I hope there's no one here by the name of Tryphena, whom I'm about to, you know, to uh, uh, insult. But Tryphena and Tryphosa are not among the names that we normally use. We breathe a sigh of relief that we have finally made it to the end of this letter. Not unlike hitting a genealogy, we're just glad we got there and we skip on. But as some of you may know, the most recent scholarly generation has devoted a great deal of attention to the names in Romans 16. That interest stems in part from a renewed interest in the social world of early Christians, and in part from our desire to learn all we can about the circumstances of the letter. Since the body of Romans tells us rather little about the audience, 
Scholars have focused on the greetings in an effort to see what information we might glean from the names themselves. Names reveal a lot. When I visit the little country cemetery where several members of my own extended family are buried, I have a sharp reminder that it was the Scots and the Irish who dominated that part of the world for a while. I don't think there's an Olson buried there, to say nothing of a Gonzales or a Gertmanian. A particular reason some of us have for attending to chapter 16 is the number of names that belong to women. Of course, elsewhere, Paul's, Paul mentions specific women. He, he refers to Chloe in, chapter, in 1 Corinthians and Euodia and Syntyche, those little quarrelers over in Philippians, and Aphia in Philemon, and he makes passing reference in Romans to Sarah and Rebecca. But here in Romans 16, we have a sizable group of women's names. In fact, I find it interesting and perhaps predictable, tiresomely predictable, that discussions of Paul and women have largely focused on those texts where he speaks about women in general, rather than about particular women. There's an awful lot written about 1 Corinthians 11 and the question of head coverings or whatever he's talking about, but a lot less about Phoebe and Junia and Chloe and other actual women. That practice to me is suspiciously consistent with our desire to talk about women as a group rather than in our particularity. Tonight I want to talk first about Phoebe in particular and then a bit about the other women who are mentioned in Romans 16, women in the Roman congregations. And tomorrow morning, I'm going to take these women and imagine what it is that they may have heard in this letter, really tackling the question of what in particular this most famous of all of Paul's letters has to say to and for and about the lives of women. So tonight's lecture is more socio-historical, tomorrow's will be more theological. Um, so let's begin with what he says about women, about Phoebe in Romans 16. You have a handout that has my translation, and at the bottom it has a list of books, I think you have a hand, yes, it has a list of books that are in the background of a lot of what I will say tomorrow, tonight and tomorrow. So in Romans 16, 1 and 2, he writes this. I present to you Phoebe, our sister, who is also a deacon of the congregation at Cancrea, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is appropriate for the saints, and assist her in whatever she may need from you. She has been a benefactor of many people and of myself as well. Now, to us, these few lines don't seem like a lot. Frankly, they seem like just a little more church chatter. But actually, Paul tells us here quite a lot about Phoebe. First, her name. Phoebe comes from Greek mythology, which means she is likely a Gentile rather than a Jew. He says she is our sister, that is, she is a follower of Jesus Christ. She's from the church at Cancrea. 
Cancrea was the port city of Corinth, just a few miles distance, which probably places both Phoebe and Paul in the general vicinity of Corinth for the writing of this letter. The fact that she's from Cancrea may further suggest that she is of Gentile, uh, that she is a Gentile, since the Corinthian congregations themselves seem to consist largely, if not entirely, of Gentile believers. And there's been no evidence found in Cancrea itself for a Jewish settlement, no synagogue, no Jewish remains at all, artifacts from this period. Paul uses two important terms to speak about Phoebe. He calls her first a diakonos and a prostatus. And both of these terms have generated a lot of discussion in the last 30 or 40 years. First, diakonos. When I pick up a new translation of the Bible or a new commentary on Romans, this is I was about to say one of the first passages I check. Actually, it is the first passage I check. Because that Greek word diakonos has been rendered with a range of English translations, from deacon to minister to servant to deaconess. The 19th century scholar Charles Hodge, who was a leading figure in the history of Princeton Seminary, in fact, I have an office in a building named for Mr. Hodge, wrote in his commentary on Romans, it appears that in the apostolic church, elderly females were, were selected to attend upon the poor and sick of their own sex. This is what a diakonos meant for him when applied to Phoebe. This is a view that goes back at least as far as Pelagius, which in my book means one more reason to regard him as a heretic. <laughs> Not that we needed any extra, but clearly what has happened is that that reference to Phoebe has been conflated with the discussion about the widows in 1 Timothy 5, and the assumption is that all references to women have to be filtered through that one reference. So she must be old, she must work only with those of her own sex. But that is all the more reason to make us pay close attention to the text on the clear understanding that we will make big uh, mistakes as well. It's just so easier to see the mistakes of a previous generation than to see our own. And they can't defend themselves. To be sure, in the various small and emerging congregations of the first century, a diakonos is not someone who enters a period of training and afterward carries out specific roles in the life of the church. The church's organization simply had not moved, I didn't say ascended, maybe descended, hadn't moved to that stage. Uh, still, it is clear that for Paul, the term must connote something of significance because he uses it for himself in First and Second Corinthians, and he uses it of Jesus Christ in Romans 15. So when Paul says that Phoebe is a deacon, he probably does not mean just that she helps out in the kitchen. Not that there's anything wrong with that. He doesn't mean that she's simply a good Christian woman, which is the way this is often glossed. There's some quality of what we would call leadership at stake here. 
That hunch is reinforced when we go back to the text and see that Paul also refers to Phoebe as a prostatus. Again, a word that's been translated in a lot of different ways. An assistant, a helper, I love that one, a leader, a benefactor, and the best translation is probably benefactor or patron, very much in the sense in which we use it. The Roman world was characterized by the patronage system, in which individuals who were further up the food chain made gifts to those who were further down in exchange for loyalty and honor. And women were among the patrons, this much is clear whether to individuals, uh, gifts or loans or favors from one woman to another, or to groups, as in meals that could have been distributed to children throughout a region or a city. Although we are accustomed to think of women in the Roman world as being excluded from politics and public life, there's a considerable body of evidence that what was the law and what was practice, were not all, that those two things did not always coincide. The satirist Juvenal, the closest, closest equivalent I can come up with is Stephen Colbert, but not so charming. <laughs> Juvenal opines that the best path to social advancement is through the favors of a wealthy old woman. And he complains about the fact that women not only host dinner parties, but even have the audacity to talk about literature and philosophy and politics. Presumably, Juvenal would not have been at all amused by Phoebe. As a prostatus, a patron, she would have been supportive in some very specific, concrete ways. If we had wall plaques from the first century, Phoebe's name might well appear toward the top of the list. Paul goes on to say that Phoebe has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. His work with his own hands was not enough to supply the needs of his mission, as we see here and elsewhere. And remember that Paul doesn't take support from everyone. In 2 Corinthians, he makes it clear that he has not taken money from them lest they accuse him of extortion. Phoebe's support could include hosting gatherings in her home, but when I say that, I don't mean that she's a sort of early Christian predecessor of Martha Stewart, you know, the hostess with the mostess who makes her home available for really cool potluck suppers. The home was itself a much more public place than is typically the case in the contemporary West. And householders received business associates or clients in their homes, not in spaces that were set apart as offices. So to say that women taught at home, this is often what's said. You find it said of um, Priscilla in Acts, oh, she took Apollos aside and taught him privately. Right, she took him home where she was in control. Um, to say that women taught at home or convened groups at home was not to segregate them, that's where the action was. So it's likely then that Phoebe is a person of some means, 
I deduce that not simply from her identification as a deacon or a benefactor or a prostatus, but from the fact that she has the ability to travel to Rome. Apparently, she has her own money. Had she been married and relying on the funds of her husband, Paul would likely have referred to him rather than her. That's the way things were done. At least some of the earliest Christians were people who put their, what they had, uh, whether it was money or prestige, at the disposal of the mission. That in itself is not trivial. If you think so, try running a stewardship campaign without a few Phoebes to help out. In addition to calling Phoebe a deacon and a benefactor, Paul has instructions for the folks at Rome. Welcome her in the Lord. Assist her. I'm going to come back later to this notion of welcome. For now, it's important to understand that this particular language, the the verb that's used here, is used of official envoys and signals that she is, is to be received just as Paul himself would have been received. Think ambassador, not messenger girl. Okay. Assist her in whatever she may need. Here it's really hard to get any sort of interpretive traction. First of all, it surely means that Phoebe will need hospitality. She needs a place to stay and food to eat. There's ample evidence for the practice of hospitality among Christian workers in this period. The book of Acts, after all, describes Lydia as hosting Paul and his companions in her home. Another instance, by the way, of a woman who appears to have her own household, as no man is named. There is also evidence that from the beginning, some people took advantage of their hosts. The late first century author of the Didache, the book of instruction or teaching, is so aware of the problem that uh, he or she offers some rules about it. Visiting apostles are to be welcomed for one day, perhaps two if there is a real need. But anyone who stays more than three days is not an authentic prophet. After three days, both the prophets and the fish are to be discarded. In his commentary on Romans, Robert Jewett has taken this phrase to mean that Phoebe went to Rome as a kind of advanced team, advanced, not advanced, uh, for for Paul's mission to Spain. Uh, I think that may put a little more weight on the Spanish mission than Paul himself does. But still, um, I think we can safely say that Phoebe is Paul's representative. She comes in his place. Now, I want to take, I want to turn now from unpacking the language in this commendation to let, take up the question of why this appears at all. There's a lot, a lot of debate about what Paul means by diakonos, what he means by prostatus. But many commentators agree that the reason Paul singles Phoebe out for commendation and requests assistance for her is that she is the one who bears the letter. 
the only official reliable mail service that existed in this period was used entirely for the purposes of what we would call the government. Private letter writers who were wealthy sent slaves. Others did the best they could, generally seeking a friend or an acquaintance traveling to the destination of the letter. And if mail service around here is like it is in New Jersey, we may soon be doing the same. <laughs> there are some amusing anecdotes about the problems with letter carriers. Cicero, to take one example, writes to a friend, I have been rather slow about making a reply to your letter because I can't find a trustworthy carrier. There are so few who can carry a letter of any substance without lightening the weight by perusal. <laughs> so, Phoebe carries the letter. That in itself is worth enjoying for a moment. Paul writes these lines by way of introducing her to the gathered faithful in Rome. She has come to Rome and has brought the letter with her. This letter, the one that stands first in the Pauline canon, the one over which not an ocean but several oceans of ink have been spilled, over which countless theological battles have been waged and are still being waged in some quarters, on the perilous rocks of which exegetical careers have been made and lost. This letter was delivered by a woman. There's an irony in that detail that is perhaps best appreciated when you consider that the history of Pauline interpretation, to our knowledge, has been, and to be very honest, it largely remains an overwhelmingly male endeavor that depended on a woman. Let's stay with that just a little bit. If Phoebe is the carrier of the letter, and most scholars agree on this point, this, there's nothing controversial in that claim, then she was certainly engaged in discussing it in advance. I've never seen anybody say this, but to me it's the most obvious thing in the world. Paul didn't simply find somebody sitting in the third row and say, hey, you, I heard you're making a trip to Rome. Would you take my letter? This letter is very important to him. Given the importance he attaches to it, how likely is it that he would entrust it to someone who doesn't know rather specifically what he wants this letter to achieve? Now, the scholarly debate about Paul's purpose in this letter is endless. But on any reading that I know anything about, the letter is deemed important to him, to his ministry. Paul needs to secure a favorable hearing in Rome. He wants their prayers for his upcoming mission to Jerusalem. He needs their support before he leaves for Spain. He would not have entrusted the letter to Phoebe without making sure that she understood its content and could represent it, which means that she was better off than any of us. I don't know if you've tried to read it lately. It's not easy. I will go a step further 
and suggests that Phoebe may even have had a hand in shaping the content of the letter. Now, that just seems like an act of imagination, but it's not as outlandish as it may seem. The problem is that we tend to think of Paul's authorship as a solitary act. We talk as if Paul sat at his desk the way I sit at mine, and he wrote as an isolated individual who had a particular set of ideas he wanted to convey. Now, already the problem suggests, the analogy suggests problems, or it does to me. None of us writes alone. Even if you are frantically writing a term paper or a sermon or a book chapter at 3 o'clock in the morning, and yours is the only light in the street that's still shining, we're still writing with somebody else. The other person may be the pastor who has uh, helped you to articulate a sense of ministry, or the professor you want to impress, or the reviewer who scares the life out of you, or the classmate. Somebody else is in your head. Nobody writes alone. In Paul's world especially, writing was not done alone. Writers didn't stake out a carol in the library or even a corner table at Starbucks. While Paul was in Corinth, he was a guest in the house of Gaius. He says that at the end of Romans. He very likely dictated this letter in the midst of busy comings and goings that made the private realm, what we call private, far more public than most contemporary Westerners can imagine. Uh, one person who has written on this topic refers to these households as housefuls, not households. And another says that they were so busy most of the time, so congested, that most Westerners would be sent into paranoia. Now, actually, the person who wrote that is someone I know and is also one of the most introverted people I know. So you might want to make a little allowance, but you get the point. Even if Paul somehow did compose in private, it is quite likely that some or all of this letter was read aloud to Gaius' household and guests, whose responses would have shaped the letter in the form in which it arrived in Rome. That much we can be pretty sure about, given what we know about the way both teaching and writing took place and the way publication was done in the ancient world. Phoebe, in particular, as the carrier of the letter, could well have been involved in responding to early drafts and shaping the direction of the final letter. Now, here I may have wandered into the land of speculation. Ernst Kazemann once wrote a footnote about how you have to forgive New Testament scholars if we think we can hear the grass grow and the bedbugs cough. <laughs> that line was more attractive before the bedbug infestation. <laughs> At the very least, Paul would have discussed this letter with Phoebe before she left for Rome. In my judgment, there's another point to make here, which is that Phoebe is also the one who reads the letter. 
She's the one Paul commends. Perhaps others travel with her, but it is Phoebe whom Paul commends to the faithful. So surely it is Phoebe who best represents his argument. Now this is a debated point. Some people assume that Phoebe would not have been capable of reading the letter. Literacy rates were low. They were low for women, even lower than they were for men. But some women did read, and precisely the sorts of women uh, Phoebe seems to be, the sort of women who has, has the resources she seems to have. If Phoebe does read the letter, then she is its first interpreter. Now, again, that may seem a stretch, but it's pretty obvious. Is it not, is it not important who does the reading? To read is to interpret. We know that from the Daily News. John Stewart's rendering of the headlines doesn't much resemble the readings of the same headlines on PBS or MSNBC to say nothing of Fox News. <laughs> we experience the power of reading in every service of public worship. Whether the scripture lessons accuse us or comfort us or simply bounce off unattended has a lot to do with the way they are read. I still remember with some chagrin the worship service many, many, many years ago when the young woman who presented the children's time in worship read the parable of the prodigal son with evident emphasis on the anguished repentance of the son, the younger brother. That was followed by the sermon. It was my sermon which dared to question the prodigal's repentance and emphasized the outrageous generosity of the father. Almost inevitably, Phoebe shaped the hearing of the letter by the way she read it. Did she rush through certain things and linger over others, pause to allow certain words to sink in, or stop to add an explanatory note at various points? I wish we had the notes. Phoebe had a role in interpreting the letter. She and Paul may well even have talked about the sort of delivery he wanted. From rhetorical studies, it's clear that people did give instructions of just that sort. But when the time came, she was on her own. There was no way to check back. No cell phone service allowed her to find out what he really wanted to say. She was the one who did the work. Even if she did not read the letter herself, even if I'm quite wrong about that, she would have been responsible for seeing that it circulated among the congregations at Rome, where her comments about it and her conversation with others would have played a role in its, in its reception. I wouldn't venture a guess about the reception, but as I see it, simply acknowledging her role changes the way we think and talk about what we refer to as Paul's work or Paul's ministry. I'll have a little more to say about that at the conclusion, but first I want to comment more briefly, I promise, on some other names in chapter 16. After the recommendation of Phoebe, Paul issues a series of greetings. Greet Prisca and Aquila, 
greet Eponidas, and so forth. There's a lot we can learn about these names, as I mentioned earlier. A number of them are names that would have been used primarily or exclusively for slaves. By, they may have been, at this point, freed women or freed men or descendants, but they're names that were used entirely for slaves. And many names are associated with, uh, with Eastern origins. That is, these people were not born in Italy, but elsewhere. And uh, many of them will have been immigrants uh, or their descendants. That is to say, were, they were brought as slaves. There's a lot we could say about that. But I want to focus particularly on the women who are identified here. I think it's safe to say that they are part of a group or groups uh, who will be among the first to hear and reflect on and respond to and argue with and be taught by this letter. Notice that they are not simply passive recipients of the letter. In most cases, Paul makes specific remarks about individuals. These are not just shout-outs. And his comments identify these women as workers on behalf of the gospel. The first to be named is Prisca. Prisca or Priscilla, as she's known in some other places. Prisca and Aquila. A couple that's mentioned also in 1 Corinthians and 2 Timothy and the Acts of the Apostles. Paul calls them fellow workers who risk their lives for him. Paul says that he and all the Gentile churches are grateful for this couple. A congregation gathers in their home, since he says, greet the church in their home. Prisca is mentioned first, which gives her some priority. This is not mere chivalry. Men are usually named first, as is the case with Andronicus and Junia in verse 7. But here, as well as in 2 Timothy and twice in Acts, Prisca is mentioned first. That may reflect her superior social standing. More likely, it means that she's the more prominent figure in Christian circles. Acts 19 gives her the lead place when reporting that she and Aquila instructed Apollos in the gospel. I'll come back to Mary, but I want to skip down to verse 7 and take note of Andronicus and Junia. This is another verse I commend checking uh, when you're looking at a new translation of the Bible or even a new commentary on Romans. You will find that some translations pair Andronicus with Junius, A-S, a man's name. Others connect Andronicus with Junia a woman's name. Now we could spend another hour or a couple of days on this question, we won't, but I will recommend to you the little book that's on your list uh, by Eldon Epp, Junia, the First Woman Apostle. The story of the two names and the name change is fascinating, but there are two crucial points. First, the female name Junia is widely attested in the Roman world. There is no evidence for the use of a male name, Junius, or Junianus. 
That name is theoretically possible, just as it would be theoretically possible that we would find the name Beverlyanus. But that name appears nowhere in no source to which we have access. So, secondly, first point, there's no such thing as a guy named Junius. Secondly, for at least the first thousand years in the life of the church, it was simply assumed that Andronicus's partner was a woman. Actually, that assumption extends well into the late 19th century, with a few exceptions. And I think it was a reaction to the early women's movement, frankly. That, but that's a, another story. I won't go off on that, I promise. Even John Chrysostom wrote, how great the wisdom of this woman must have been that she was deemed worthy of the title of apostle. Chrysostom simply assumes that Junia is a female figure. Now, I sometimes think that Chrysostom was a theologian of the social gospel centuries before there was such a thing. If you've ever read his sermons, no matter where you are in the text, when you get to the end, he's ranting about how the rich mistreat the poor. Doesn't matter. Whatever the text is, that's the end. Fascinating. Whatever he was, though, he was no raging feminist. But he, he recognizes that this is a woman. Junia and her husband are identified as well-regarded among the apostles. Shaped by Luke's picture of the twelve, we may be surprised to find a reference here to other apostles, especially a woman, but Paul does not place a restriction on the number, and apparently his number includes at least one woman. Other women are singled out here. Mary, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis, the mother of, Ju of Rufus, Julia, and the sister of Nerea. About most of these women, Paul makes a comment. Mary labored among you. Tryphena and Tryphosa labor in the Lord. These are expressions he uses elsewhere of his own apostolic labor. They're exactly the same terms. So to say that Tryphena and Tryphosa labor in the Lord is not just to say that they tidy up after the church supper. Again, not that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, it's, it's hard to make the distinction that I want to make without demeaning some sorts of work, and I don't, I'm loath to do that. What I want to underscore is that the work being referred to here is likely to be connected with what we would call apostolic or missional endeavors. Well, it's time to stop cataloging now and to start reflecting. What difference does this make, if any? In many Christian circles, it makes a lot of difference. I teach a course on women and the letters of Paul, which routinely attracts at least some students whose community of origin persists in telling them that only men should be ordained because only men have been ordained. And Paul is often, always, cited as the chief proponent of the exclusion of women. So one of the first things I do in that class is open up this text and just start reading. It's amazing what happens when you look at the evidence. Among those Christians who carry no such baggage, 
who have never encountered the exclusion of women from Christian leadership, or for whom that is ancient history, Paul is often still perceived to be a problem, even an offense. He is blamed for, among other things, restricting women's leadership. And to be sure, as the author of 2 Peter tells us, there are many things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. That continues to be true. But there are also many things that are perfectly obvious, unless we refuse to hear and read what they say. I think there are also many things in Paul's letters that we need to hear. And I would hope that finding Phoebe and Prisca and Mary and Junia and Tryphena and Tryphosa and Persis and Julia in Romans 16 would at least open our ears to the possibility that the historical Paul may have been more open to the work of women than most of us have assumed. Quite apart from the questions about Paul himself, his attitudes and his practices, Taking these names seriously help, helps us in the longer project of reclaiming women's contributions throughout the life of the church. And it also contributes to a much-needed complicating of our understanding of women in the ancient world in general. And one more thing. I mentioned earlier that reflecting on this list might make us a little more cautious when we talk about Paul's ministry or Paul's teaching. Now, I confess that I do that all the time because it's a shorthand and I'm not going to get up every time and say, Paul and the other people whose names we don't know and Junie and so blah, blah, blah. Uh, uh, I, I make no claim at all that we can imagine how, how exactly Phoebe might have influenced the letter or the work in Rome. But when we look at these names, both the names of women and the names of men at the end of Romans, we might want to reflect on the way in which we talk about the work of ministry. This may be an excellent point at which to reflect on the casual way in which we talk about my work. Even those of us who cast a critical eye on the toxic individualism of American culture are nonetheless shaped by, even deformed by, that same individualistic culture. So that we assess ourselves by wholly unrealistic notions of what we as individuals should be able to achieve. One of my many worries about the so-called new forms of church being urged upon us is that they thrive upon the entrepreneurial model, which can, in turn, be very individualistic. The names in Romans 16, the names of the women, the names of the men, remind us that Paul's ministry was actually a shared ministry. It was not his alone. And of course, he would have said immediately that the ministry belonged to God. Tomorrow I'll take up the content of the letter, at least some bits of it, to think imaginatively about the question of how this letter may have sounded in the ears of women. Thank you. <laughs>